0: This podcast has been made possible by our local sponsor, Mutual Materials. They also help make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of this city was built with their products. That cool old brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And the exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be Mutual's slim brick tile. What about outdoor spaces? Paved patios, retaining walls, fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey. Exploring the Rose City's architectural and cultural landmarks. Forgotten gems and the dreamers who populate them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've spent 20 years writing about local architecture and the arts. On season two of this podcast, we'll continue talking with a diverse group of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Thanks again for joining us. Today we're headed to what used to be quite a hot spot in southeast Portland. So hot, in fact, that it's one of the only urban volcanoes in the United States. Don't worry, nobody is predicting an eruption anytime soon. But what today is known as Mount Tabor Park is an extinct cinder cone that's part of a lava field extending from Portland East to the edge of Mount Hood. Besides Mount Tabor, other cinder cones in the greater metro area Include Rocky Butte, Powell Butte, Mount Scott, and the largest, Larch Mountain. Mount Tabor Park is located between Southeast 60th and 71st Avenues and by Southeast Yamhill and Grant Streets. It's about 196 acres in total. The park was named after Mount Tabor in Israel by Clinton Kelly, whose family was among the earliest white settlers in Portland. In the mid 19th century, people hiked its hilly terrain to hunt deer and even bear. But the process of making Mount Tabor an official park began in 1888 when the Lamberson family bequeathed their tract of land to the city. Beginning in 1894 and predating the park as well, a series of reservoirs were built at Mount Tabor to store drinking water piped from the pristine Bull Run River near Mount Hood, including two open-air reservoirs built in 1911 at Tabor that remain a major attraction today. In 2015, the city tried to cover these reservoirs to protect the drinking water from contamination. But there was substantial public pushback to the plan because these reservoirs are essentially the water feature destination for visitors to the park, acting more like small lakes than open-air storage tanks. So the city abandoned the cover idea and instead constructed two additional underground reservoirs to provide the drinking water. Mount Tabor Park was completed in 1909, just four years after the Lewis and Clark Centennial Exposition, which seeded one of the biggest periods of population and economic growth in the city's history. The park's construction, like the exposition itself, was part of the nationwide City Beautiful movement that saw parks built across America in the first decades of the 20th century. Mount Tabor was the largest park in Portland for nearly four decades until the 1948 dedication of Forest Park, And thankfully, since the 1970s, most of Mount Tabor's paved drives have been closed to automobile traffic. On a personal note, as a resident of southeast Portland since 1998, Mount Tabor has long been one of my favorite local parks. Going there, I've always been surprised how vast it feels, with something new. A ravine, a reservoir, a cluster of particularly towering, old-growth Douglas fir trees, always waiting around the corner. This isn't like a butte where you just take a circular path winding upward in your car. The elevations rise and fall. In fact, there are four different peaks here. In a sense, Mount Tabor Park is a well of greenery that benefits the entire city. At its base is a nursery that for well over a century has supplied thousands of plants and street trees to Portland's parks and boulevards. Thankfully, the park survived the wrath of Mayor Joseph Simon, who was elected in 1909, the same year Mount Tabor Park was completed. Simon, a Republican who had previously been a United States senator from 1898 to 1903, was against using public funds for parks. But after Simon's departure in 1911, six more eastside parks came online. By 1915, 60% of Portlanders lived east of the river, and they were clamoring for green spaces like Mount Tabor Park and Laurelhurst Park. To learn more about Mount Tabor and the tradition it's part of, our first interview is with Lawrence Cotton, a historian, writer, and filmmaker who co-created the 2014 documentary Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America, which aired nationally on PBS television. Let's listen for a moment to a brief audio clip from the beginning of that documentary, narrated by actress Stockard Channing. What is it about an Olmstead landscape that makes people love them so much? Most folks, when they're walking through the park, they go, wow, this is a really pretty landscape. They have no idea that every nook, every cranny of these landscapes were laid out
1: intentionally. This isn't a piece of natural landscape that someone has put a fence around. It's just the opposite. It's a stage set.
2: These theaters of life with the work of the most successful landscape architect who
1: ever lived. Olmsted has a double legacy. On the one hand, he's a super pragmatist. He's a problem solver. At the same time, he's a dreamer. What his parks are all about is finding immensely practical solutions to the problem of building a dream in the middle of a city.
0: I talked with Lawrence about Frederick Law Olmsted, the legendary designer of Central Park in New York City, which opened in 1858, and whose son and nephew took the Olmsted firm National, designing parks and creating some of the first citywide park master plans for cities all over America, including Portland. And of course, Lawrence and I talk about Mount Tabor Park's designer, Emanuel Tillman-Misch, who created not just a green space on a cinder cone, but a narrative that unfolds over several visits. When you reach the top of Mount Tabor on a hike, there is indeed a beautiful vista awaiting, with views of the downtown Portland skyline to the west, Mount Hood to the east, and even Mount St. Helens to the north. At the top of the park, there's a nice little flat area where you can have a picnic, or in some cases see a play or a music performance, as my partner has. There is also located at the top A statue or two. I don't mean to be vague. It's just that the statuary of Mount Tabor has been an ongoing drama, and what statue, if any, is there has changed recently. From 1933 until 2020, there was a statue of Harvey Scott, who was editor of the Oregonian newspaper for 40 years. Scott was a conservative in the 19th and early 20th century who opposed progressive ideas like public education and women's suffrage. In fact. Harvey Scott was the brother of Oregon's greatest women's suffrage leader, Abigail Scott Dunaway, and even wrote editorials opposing her efforts. But he had also been a steadfast supporter of President Abraham Lincoln and the Union cause during the Civil War. What's more, the statue of Harvey Scott that was erected at the top of Mount Tabor Park in 1933 was designed by none other than Gutzon Borglum, the designer of Mount Rushmore. In fact, Borglum designed the Harvey Scott statue midway through Rushmore's 14-year construction. However, in 2020, the Harvey Scott statue was toppled by protesters as part of a wave of such events around the world. The phenomenon is continuing in a more orderly way in 2021 as cities like Richmond, Virginia voluntarily remove statues of Confederate Civil War generals. In February of 2021, Another statue was erected at Mount Tabor, unofficially and clandestinely, but with great skill and polish. This new statue was a bust of York, the black slave who accompanied Lewis and Clark on their expedition west on behalf of President Jefferson. A plaque on its front called York, the first African American to cross North America and reach the Pacific coast. The text goes on as follows. Born into slavery in the 1770s to the family of William Clark, York became a member of the 1804 Lewis and Clark Expedition. Though York was an enslaved laborer, he performed all of the duties of a full member of the expedition. He was a skilled hunter, negotiated trade with Native American communities, and tended to the sick. Upon his return east with the Corps of Discovery, York asked for his freedom. Clark refused his request. End quote. Though the artist of the York statue has remained anonymous, he did do an interview with the online publication Artnet, saying, quote, I'm very familiar with Mount Tabor Park, and seeing that empty pedestal often, it just came to me, literally in the middle of the night, that York belonged there, looking out over Portland. After the York statue was erected, City of Portland Parks Bureau Director Adina Long was quoted as saying the city was in no hurry to remove the statue. That the combination of inspiration and education it offered, quote, seems like what public art is all about. But the York statue was made of wood and polyurethane, not stone and bronze. So it was not meant to last. The city reserved the right to remove the York statue as it weathered. But before that could happen, the statue was first vandalized with spray paint in late June. The perpetrator was even caught in the act on video. And a month later, the statue was outright toppled. As it happens, the city of Portland was already talking about commissioning a permanent version of the York statue anyway. And given how the statue's stakes have now been raised, it's arguably all the more worth supporting. And what should we do with the Harvey Scott statue? We could keep this bronze dinosaur in storage permanently. But it's a true work of art by one of the most famous sculptors in American history. Maybe instead we could ship Harvey out to Clackamas County, which not only leans conservative, but already has its own local cinder cone named after him as well, Mount Scott. One way or another, though, I doubt Harvey's coming back to Mount Tabor. Maybe we need to rethink public art and statuary altogether. As we discussed in a previous episode about the ilk statue, maybe we don't need such hagiography and hero-worshipping. Or maybe we need to celebrate in bronze people who simply inspire wide swaths of the population. Speaking of which... As we'll get into in this episode, I have another idea whom we might honor at the top of Mount Tabor in this way. Maybe not instead of York, if he stays long term, but perhaps to keep him company. A Portland woman who spent time at the park during a key moment in her youth, before going on to become a hero during World War II. Her name was Claire Phillips. She grew up in Southeast Portland and later, as a singer and dancer, found her way across the Pacific to the Philippines where she became known as Manila Matahari, or Madam High Pockets, after spying on the Japanese while proprietress of the Tsubaki Club. After the war, there was a Hollywood movie made about Claire called I Was an American Spy. Let's listen to a brief clip from the beginning of that film, starring Anne Dvorak as Claire and Douglas Kennedy as Sergeant John Phillips.
2: I tried to phone
0: you all day. The base is a madhouse,
2: honey, I'm AWOL. Well, don't be afraid. I'm not afraid, I'm... I
3: knew you'd get here.
2: You weren't sure? Um. Everything about to explode, you thought I'd ditch you? Oh, Claire, you're all i god. Understand? Now, come on, I'm due back at the post right now. They gave me 50 men, I got to mobilize communications. We're falling back. When? Right away, Manila's going to be an open city. We're going to fall back and then fight and then fall back some more. But to where? Hell, I guess.
0: She was also the guest of honor on top rated TV show This Is Your Life and given the Medal of Freedom, our nation's highest civilian honor. For our final audio clip, let's take a brief listen to that show as Claire tells a bit of her story to host Ralph Edwards.
3: This is Your Life, Claire Phillips. One of the important pieces of information you send,
1: Claire Phillips, or High Pockets, is the departure time, route, and destination of a Japanese submarine flotilla. How did you get this information?
2: Well, uh, the commander of the submarine flotilla came to the club one night, and uh, so I said, now, you tell us when you're leaving so we can give you a big farewell party. We always do that with important people like you. Of course, his chest started to swell a little, when I called him important, he said, but you won't have time, he said, because uh, we're leaving, I believe it was the same morning, something, two or three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I knew I had to have some way of holding him there, and I said, well, what uh, could we do to induce you to stay over another day, besides giving you a nice farewell party? And he I had been to the States and had heard of Sally Rand, so he said, well, if I could see Sally Rand do the fan dance, I would stay. <laughs> so I said, well, I can't get Sally Rand over here, but, and I kind of stalled for a minute trying to think of something, and one of my lovely employees, it might have been felly I don't remember who, they were always getting me in Jam said, well, Madam can do the fan dance. <laughs> so I guaranteed that I would give him the fan dance the next night if he would come. So they reserved the whole club then for nothing, no one else could get in excepting just the men from his submarines. see, that gave me an extra 24 hours, and I could get messages to Boone. So the next morning when I woke up, I called my little crew together, and I said, now you all got me in this jam, get me out. How do I do a fan dance? I have no fans. And I'd never seen the fan dance done, but uh, they were very obliging. Felly took uh, an old pink slip, I remember of mine, and made it into a little scanty costume to wear, and the boys got bamboo and made it into two huge fans, and I did the dance, we held them long enough to uh, get the information to where it was. ...to be sent. Right.
3: The information was sent on. Every sub in the flotilla was sunk.
0: But Claire died relatively young, unable to outrun the post-traumatic stress she accrued during the war. To learn more about Claire Phillips, who used to cut class at nearby Franklin High to daydream and smoke cigarettes at the top of Mount Tabor, our second interview is with Sig Unander, a historian, author, speaker, and filmmaker who has been working for the past decade on a biography about Claire. In addition, Sig is a historian of Mexico's Aztec Eagles flying squadron from World War II, as well as the life of -of turn-of-the-century Portland lumberbarian and civic leader Simon Benson, Sig's great-grandfather. So let's get started, and thanks again for joining us. Lawrence Cotton, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland.
1: Well, nice to be here, Ryan. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well, uh, I was a big fan of uh, some of the documentaries that you've worked on. Uh, most recently, I watched a great one about C.E.S. Wood on OPB, but uh, I really love your piece on Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America, uh, I believe it's called, from 2014. And uh, um, that's why I wanted to bring you here, because of the Olmstedian tradition that exists uh, at Mount Tabor Park. And so uh, I to just uh, to start with, if you could talk a little bit about... Um, the development of your own interest in Frederick Law Olmsted, and uh, either before or through that project, and, and maybe uh, you know seven years later, what you really take away with regard to to, to Frederick and the legacy that he started.
1: Brian, my uh, it's sometimes hard for me to actually really date what I call my walk on the Olmsted Trail. Uh, I was raised in the suburbs of Boston. Uh, and my maternal grandparents lived, when I was a child, they lived very near Boston's Franklin Park, which is the large, quote-unquote, central park of Boston, which is at the end, the terminus, if you will, of the arc of what is now the famed Emerald Necklace of Boston. I like to think that that's when my fascination for all things Olmstead began, but of course, that's a, that's a little bit of a, a fabrication, I suppose, uh, in my own head. But certainly when i was a high school student and beginning college student and i started to regularly walk the fenway in boston and the gardens there and visit the museum of fine arts of which i was an active member later on as an adult in the isabella Stewart gardner museum both of, both of which are along the fenway which is really the beginning of the emerald necklace that's when I began to realize there's something special here. And yet I wasn't focused on Frederick, on the author, Mm -hmm. the -hmm. genius behind it. I just loved the landscape. I moved to Portland at the end of 1994. I didn't really get very activated into Portland as a city until sometime later in 1995. It was an all-encompassing nonprofit management job. At the time, I was directing the World Affairs Council of Oregon. So I wasn't exactly... I didn't even really have the time to explore the parks or to explore the outdoors to any great extent, although I, I familiarized myself with the general lay of the land, the, the geography and the topography, and I certainly went to a few of the parks and got, became familiar with the, the nexus of the two major rivers here. And I, of course, did some trips to outlying areas. I want to say it was a couple of years later when I finally... Uh, dawned on me that there's an extraordinary system of parks here and very quickly realized indeed at that point that there was another Olmsted involved and that would be John Charles Olmsted. So I want to say it wasn't until the really the late 90s that I became enthralled with the fact that there's an Olmstead legacy here in the Pacific Northwest and I began to do more and more research,
4: mm-hmm.
1: uh, including reading the popular biography at that time clearing in the distance a clearing in the distance by Witold Rivzinski the great cultural historian yes there and, are a few of his and, books and, right behind you <laughs> yeah, and and really i think he's a, he has a renaissance mind he's a renaissance type writer really anything that he tackles but i really think one of his very best books of all of his body of work is a clearing in the distance and even though a more recent biography has come out since that time also a fine fine book Uh, A Genius of Place by Justin Martin. Uh, Rybzynski's book still remains my favorite. I began to do more research, began to delve more deeply into the scholarship, and uh, I did a little bit of homework. I had already just produced the film, co-produced, I should say, with my colleague John DeGraff uh, working with Oregon Public Broadcasting, our film about CES Wood, and uh, shuffling around for another project. And a thousand light bulbs went off. And I said, by golly, if no one has yet produced a film for national television about the life and legacy of Frederick Law Olmsted, then I'm going to do my damnedest to try to get it done. I was fortunate to have a good friend back east, colleague, if you will, uh, Lawrence Hott, who actually co-founded Florentine Films with Ken Burns. Larry Hott went off to basically branched off to run his own film production business in Massachusetts, but still under the rubric, the umbrella of uh, Florentine films. Mm -hmm. I got together with Larry, and Larry and I did our homework and our research, and we discovered there was another little film project that was kind of getting going at the same time, but we decided that we would do our own version Uh and what we thought might be a qualitatively different version. I have to say the other one is just fine. It came out around the same time, and it's a wonderful film in and of its own. And uh, we did manage to, took us uh, five years. Uh, in the, we finished the film, I want to say, in the fall of 2013, but it had its pr- uh, both public screening premieres and PBS premiere in the spring and summer. Of 2014 mm-hmm. uh, and ever since then I've been busy showing it around the country and actually immersing myself I have to say ever deeper it's become uh, really a lifelong love affair I actually have enough I'm involved with I've been involved with other projects since I have another big one that I'm working on now it's a collaboration with a friend but uh, I'm still on the Olmsted trail because the more I discover nationally and regionally, including here in the Pacific Northwest, the more I'm enthralled. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned the Emerald Necklace, you've mentioned uh, parks in Portland, you've uh, mentioned parks in other uh, parts of the country, and there really was this kind of Olmstedification of the United States uh, because uh, when you look at the combined couple of generations, how prolific they were. And this, if I'm not mistaken, is coming on the heels or, or was really perhaps towards the end of the City Beautiful movement. Uh, I wonder if you could, maybe for people who don't quite know this history, put it just a little bit in context of how, you know, you had the Industrial Revolution and then you had the City Beautiful uh, movement as a kind of response to that, to sort of humanize cities that were becoming increasingly dehumanized.
1: And be- by the way, before the City Beautiful movement, there was also something, particularly in England, but also here in the US, called the Arts and Crafts movement. Yes. and. This is all connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, plus you had the Hudson River School of landscape painters and their next generation, would, which would include the original generation, would include people like Thomas Cole, famous for his New England and, and upsta- uh, Hudson River Valley landscapes, right. but the next generation would include people like Frederick Edwin Church.
0: Right, all with expressing a, a kind of sense of wonder about the landscape.
1: Indeed. And you had the transcendentalists, Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman, and mm-hmm. his poetry, all, and others writing extraordinary literature and communing with nature and seeking a certain kind of mysticism, all of that was of influence to Olmsted Sr. He was profoundly influenced by all these. In fact, he knew many of these individuals. He, he actually uh, published. He was a literary publisher, by the way, mm-hmm. not well-known. In addition to co-founding The Nation magazine, mm-hmm. he was a literary publisher. He actually published Emerson. He even published uh, 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 The Gentleman Who Wrote Moby Dick, <laughs> of all things, which surprises a lot of people. Uh, he, uh, he was immersed in that world. He was influenced by Olmsted Sr. I'll get to the City Beautiful movement in a moment. But Olmstead Sr. was influenced by the English gardening legacy, or I should say garden design traditions, in particular of two people, uh, Capability Brown and Humphrey Repton whose magnificent public, mostly private parks, were there across England. Uh, he also visited early on. Uh, he did His first publication, by the way, his own publication, his first book was called Walks and Talks of an American Farmer in England. Mm-hmm. He and his uh, brother and colleagues literally traveled across southern England, well, parts of northern England too, by train, carriage, and literally walking. Mm-hmm visiting the mostly private estate parks in England. But one park he fell in love with was the first public park to ever open in England, expressly for the public, Birkenhead Park, Ah. across the river uh, from Liverpool in a community called Birkenhead that's still there today and designed by Joseph Paxton. And he was enthralled by that park, which was designed for the public expressly and had a beautiful combination of pastoral elements, and what Olmsted would describe as picturesque elements. And the pastoral and the picturesque are the two design motifs, there are others, but the two principal design motifs that play out in all of Olmstead's masterpieces, starting with Central Park.
4: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The, green,
1: the Greensward design for Central Park, the yes. pastoral and the picturesque. Yes. Now, that was Olmstead Sr. And keep in mind, before I go any further, and I just want to r- remind everyone who's listening that... If you take in the fact that there was the Olmst- Frederick Olmsted Senior, his elder son, uh, who he married his his brother, his beloved brother, died young. Mm-hmm. Olmsted married his brother's widow, named Mary. Mary would brought with her a parcel of children, including uh, a, that who Olmsted would adopt as his own mm-hmm. and raise as his own, mm-hmm. and bring into the family business. One in particular, John Charles Olmsted. Uh, who was so instrumental in the Pacific, throughout the Pacific Northwest, including Portland. Yes. He uh, he also, they also had kids of their own. The youngest would be Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., who took on his father's mantle in every single notion of that term, including people still to this day confuse the two. Uh Because Jr. left a huge mark across America in the 20th century, and it was Jr. who was probably most influenced by the, what we now call the City Beautiful movement. But going back to that, I will say that uh, yes, uh, cities were getting concentrated, uh, populations were booming. There were many, uh, uh, in some ex- hard, uh, hardworking people, many of whom were desperately poor, including new immigrant classes, flooding into the cities of the East, in particular, our industrial cities, living in not very healthy conditions. And Olmsted, one of his fundamental reasons for creating all of his majestic public parks was to provide, quote-unquote, famously, the lungs of the city. Not just Central Park, but other parks as well. And he saw parks, His his very, he was actually a philosopher of democracy. It's pretty clear in most of his writings. He was a deep thinker about this. And he saw public parks as literally as a place to enact democracy for all peoples of all classes and uh, 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 racial and religious orientations uh, to mix and mingle regardless of their place of origin. That that the public park was a place for people to, to breathe fresh air, to exercise, to derive n- nourishment, physical, well, mental and spiritual nourishment, if you will, in nature, including solace in nature. It's uh,
0: interesting. Uh, uh, one question yeah. I have uh, related to that is is... Uh, when you talk about these parks as being an expression of or or enabler of democracy it seems like a um, they're also perhaps borrowing a little bit from the, the ancient Greek stoa or, or some of the more classical notions of a, of a town square, even though they get um, manifested as something more pastoral, something more rooted in nature. Maybe along with Emerson and Thoreau, there's a little bit of kind of the ancient Greeks and that notion of, uh, uh, of a public plaza. Even though all the Olmsteads are not building public plazas, it seems like maybe there's a little bit of that DNA in there too.
1: Well, I would like to amend that. Uh, Frederick o. Olmsted designed and built the Capitol Steps on the U.S. Capitol. That's right. The place where democracy was recently attacked and the place where, on uh, January 20th, democracy and the peaceful uh, exchange of power in the United States was upheld, uh-huh. uh, the Capitol Steps. So it isn't so far afield to suggest that... Uh, All of them. And and by the way, uh, uh, Junior was deeply involved with the Macmillan Commission and the Fine Arts Commission for Washington, D.C., which was a pure expression of the City Beautiful movement in the early 20th century. Going back to the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, where Olmsted was the hired landscape architect working for the brilliant impresario Daniel Burnham.
0: Yes, in Chicago, that's right.
1: Also known as the Chicago World's Fair, but officially the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893. Now, nowadays we probably wouldn't be holding any kind of a big giant event to commemorate Columbus's arrival in America, would we? But back then they did. And the... Architect, the best architects of America, literally, many of whom were the first expressors of the City Beautiful movement, including McKim, including Burnham himself, including Sullivan, and others of the day, joined with Olmstead and others to create the white city, the amazing white city that was there for but one season, mm-hmm. from spring to fall, 1893. And that was at that point no doubt the purest expression of the city beautiful movement in america but it certainly carried forward to the 1905 lewis and clark exposition which put portland on the map literally the national map and to the 1909 ayp as they call it the alaska yukon pacific exposition seattle was already on the map but the ayp in 1909 certainly put it there ever more so and by the way it became the centerpiece of that exposition became the centerpiece of the modern U- UW, University of Washington campus, as we know it today.
0: Yes, and you have the World's Fair in 1962 shaping the city in Seattle as well.
1: Correct. Which That's right, a later iteration of that. Arguably, I'm not so sure people were still thinking about the City Beautiful Movement in no. 1962 to the no. to the same way they were earlier in the 20th century, but no no doubt it's the further iteration of that. Um, but really, so from father... She, the, the, Exposi- World's Fairs and expositions were a big deal, really, up until about 1967. Uh, what year was Spokane? Do you remember? And then, of course, there was the Montreal. early 70s, maybe uh,
0: 72, 73. Yeah, I think uh, Nixon was president still.
1: Yeah, well, it's... And Montreal was 67, unless I'm mistaken. I'm yes. quite sure. Or you could say Montreal was the last major successful one, seems to me. Mm-hmm. There have been others even since Montreal, but it seems to me that whole movement kind of Petered out after Montreal. Yeah. Uh, and
0: you have the Chicago Exposition in 93, and then it's exactly one decade later that you have the Olmsted Plan for Portland, which is correct. also two years before the Lewis and Clark Exposition, but correct. would have maybe been anticipating it.
1: Not only that, he was hired, actually, Olmsted, John Charles was hired by the Portland Parks Commissioners under the leadership of Thomas Lamb Elliott. Who was Thomas Lamb Elliott? It's important to understand who this fellow was. Absolutely. I think you know, but let me just mention a few things. Yeah. He's a cousin to Charles Elliott. Who is Charles Elliott? The son of the president of Harvard University and a leading member of the Olmstead firm. Before it took on the name Olmstead Brothers, it was called Olmstead, Elliott, and Olmsted, unless I'm mistaken. And he died young, Charles Eliot. But uh, many of the Portland founders were Easterners. Many of the leading citizens, men and women, of Portland came from the East, no surprise. Mm-hmm. Many of them had significant connections to Boston, to Harvard, to the Unitarian Church, among other things, as was Charles Elliott, the founding pastor of the first Unitarian Church, and the founder of the Oregon Humane Society, yes. and a leading member of the Portland Art Association that created the Portland Art Museum, and... The library. The library, and the founder of Reed College. Yes. And Lamb Elliott, who was a obviously a leading... Leader of the, uh, a leading citizen of the city also was very involved with the very early days of the parks board here in Portland, as was Colonel L.L. L. Hawkins. Colonel was a familiar endearment, but Lester Leander Hawkins, who was a part of that coterie, mm-hmm. and uh, Chalice Lamb Elliott and others, saw hey, if Portland wants to be on the map. Uh, With these expositions and with parks, there's only one firm in America that would be the right firm for us to recruit, uh, even though we can't afford them. And we're going to pay them. We're going to nickel and dime them all the way because Portland is perennially cheap, frankly, especially at that point in time. But arguably, you could still say today and sometimes for good reason Uh uh, compared to other big spending cities like perhaps Seattle, San Francisco on the West Coast. Anyway, we actually cost-shared. Because Seattle and Spokane were also inviting the Olmsted brothers out here at the same time. And the cities, especially Seattle and Portland, literally cost-share. Uh, knowing that they both wanted parks systems. Not just individual parks, but park systems. Yeah. And they both wanted expositions. But the, Port- the Lewis and Clark Exposition was by far was much earlier on the calendar, so to speak, because uh-huh. of the date. And they brought the, uh, John Charles, also typically called John C. Olmstead here to begin mapping out, planning the Lewis and Clark Exposition, which was eventually designed and became real at the site of what was called Giles Lake in northwest Portland back then. Mm -hmm. Giles Lake is no more, but it did exist then. Yeah. And and it was also deemed to be extraordinarily successful. But while he was working on that plan, he was also working on a master plan, a a report to the Parks Board, first published, he did two reports for the Parks Board. The first one was published in 1903, and it's a, it's a masterful report, loaded with what I consider characteristically uh, rich Olmsted language, very much following in his father's footsteps. The importance of a municipal park to the to the to the future planning of a city and to its citizenry and uh, uh, to the aesthetic. Attractiveness that makes a modern city a livable place. I'm using somewhat modern language to put a spin on it. Mm-hmm. And then he marks 18 benchmarks in municipal park planning. There to this, actually, those, the report, by the way, was not only published and distributed all over America, it was distributed worldwide. Wow. It became literally the founding document of municipal park planning in America. Wow for parks planning park systems and to this day that report and those 18 benchmarks are kind of examined this is how you not only create but maintain and govern a modern municipal park system that meets the needs of the citizensry of a modern city and it's really quite a stunning stunning document now he then began to map out a park system for portland and it was published in the headlines in the oregonian and the oregonian by the way uh, really, uh, they, they were fascinated by this well-heeled Easterner who was visiting Portland. I think he made 11 visits in total mm-hmm. uh, that produced the first report and then the second report uh, and a parks plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, by the way, you have to also mention L.L. Hawkins a little bit more about him here. What's cool is that L.L. L. Hawkins, let's call him L.L. Hawkins. L.L. Hawkins had a tally oh, a buggy, uh, and he picked... J.C. Olmsted. when J.C. Olmsted arrived in town, he picked, he met him at Union Station. By the way, he went all over America by train back then. That was uh-huh. the only way to get anywhere. Yeah. All these trips from the East Coast to the Pacific Northwest by train. That's and, a lot of time.
0: And an, and an only newly possible train line to Portland.
1: That's, that's correct. Yep. A uh, couple of days earlier. A couple of decades earlier, unless I'm mistaken. Um, anyway, he met him in the, he picked him up in the Tally Ho, L.L. Hawkins, and he ushered him all over town from hill to dale, so to speak, meaning from West Hills to the Willamette River, north, nearly to the Columbia, I'm quite sure he might have seen the confluence, and certainly to Mount Tabor, uh-huh. by, by the way, and south as far as today's Selwood. He drove on multiple visits, uh, over hill and over dale and down to the river and back up to the hill, so that Olmsted could take in the views and all of that combined with the rivers, all of that to, to him suggested, well, this is a gorgeous natural environment to capitalize on and to to spread out an entire park system with, this is the other Olmsted element that is so crucial to understand, with connecting parkways and boulevards. Yes. Parkways were invented, literally invented, by Frederick Law Olmsted and Cal, his partner for several decades, Calvert Vox, when they created the Buffalo New York park system, the first integrated park system in America.
0: Mm-hmm. That, yeah. came,
1: that came a few years after Prospect Park in Brooklyn, by the way. Yeah, so and,
0: a parkway is not just a synonym for a boulevard.
1: No. A parkway literally uh, has uh, a, a a linear park in the middle, as well as sufficient tree plantings on both sides so that the whole roadway, usually a one-way scenario, or I should say like a couplet, but not always... But the whole roadway itself is a large, lengthy, linear park that connects parks. So, and the whole idea behind this really began with Buffalo in Olmsted's thinking is that a park system is to cre- create the feel of a city contained within a park. Yes. A city contained within a masterful park or a masterful series of parks which contain and encircle and engulf and wind their way through an urban environment Uh he began it in buffalo he certainly continued it in boston with the emerald necklace he did the same thing in rochester by the way he did the same thing in louisville he did the same thing arguably in milwaukee wisconsin and piecemeal he did it piecemeal he didn't quite do it wholesale but he did it piecemeal in chicago and piecemeal in many other cities as did his two sons Uh across america including course john charles here not only with the amazing system we have in portland but And I hope Portlanders don't get upset at this, but arguably even more so in Seattle, Uh where not only did he create a larger masterful uh, collection of parks and parkways, but Olmsted, Seattle had a little more money. Yes. And up there, John Charles Olmsted actually designed many of those key parks. Whereas here, he did leave it to his appointee, his suggested appointee. Uh, Emmanuel Mish, who was yes. brought in, who I know you want to talk about.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you next um, about Mish as well. Like, uh, uh, what can you tell us about uh, the fingerprint that he ended up leaving on Portland? Uh, uh, he's the designer of uh, Laurelhurst Park as well as Mount Tabor Park, and I believe there are some other designs around the nation that are significant, such as the Vanderbilt Estate in North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, how to do, where does Mish come into this drama?
1: He He was an acolyte, a disciple of the Olmsteads. And had worked
0: for them, if I'm not mistaken. Correct.
1: And actually, before that, he studied at the Missouri Botanic School, if I have the name of it correct. He apprenticed at the Arnold Arboretum with Charles Sprague Sargent, the most, arguably the most famous botanist at that time in America, who was the head of the Arnold Arboretum. So he he actually apprenticed there and learned his plantsmanship. That's a, a term that they used back then. Uh, his botany, botanizing, uh, and then he was he received a scholarship to the Kew Bot- uh, Botanic Gardens in Kew, England. Oh, and he spent a year and a half continuing his um, immersion in this amazing world of parks and, bo- and, and botanical gardens. I love that place for an entire year and a half. I do too, although it's been ages. Uh, and then he came back to the States, and then he was hired by the Olmstead Firm. Uh-huh. So that And that was the late 1890s, I'm quite sure, yes. when he started up at the Olmstead Firm. And he continued there until uh, John Charles was more or less wrapping up his work. But he said to Portland, look, the only way you can continue this and carry out my plan is to hire a professional, a Parks professional. And they actually had one other individual in mind. And that person, uh, they didn't. They sent it out. The Portland Parks Bureau, I believe, sent out an invitation to the other individual. He declined. But number two was Emanuel Mish. I think it was a, he was a good find, and he was the perfect fit, at least for a period of time, for Portland. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He, he did come to Portland, and it was Mish who did, in fact, truly carry out that Olmsted master plan, and who did individually design most of what we consider the older legacy parks of Portland from the early 20th century. Most notably perhaps Laurelhurst, but also Peninsula Park, also uh, uh, Columbia Park, uh, uh, Selwood Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's actually quite a large list of others that he uh, masterfully planned in the, really with the Olmstead aesthetic. He was, yeah. tru- he was truly an Olmsteadian in, in, in every respect. Even his drawings, according to uh, according to uh, a couple of individuals who, I wrote, who who I've read who wrote about this, if you look at an Misha drawing, uh, a plan for a park—you can hardly distinguish it from the—in they're hand-drawn. Many of these back then, you can hardly distinguish it from that of the hand of J- John Charles Olmstead, uh, because he 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 learned their very drawing techniques, and, and their their plans look—you can hardly distinguish the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He he had so uh, in. Uh, Absorbed the Olmstead design mm-hmm. uh, consciousness and legacy and technique, uh-huh. Uh-huh. The, the, draft, the drafting techniques that were being used in the Olmsted offices back then, and it was Mish who actually did indeed design uh, Mount Tabor as well. Mm-hmm. He designed the, car- the, tr- the, the carriage the, the carriage roads that were there and the overall uh, and the features on the on the summit and the stairways. By the way, mm-hmm. those were all Mish, as far as I understand.
0: And it it occurred to me while you were describing some of that, I was uh, thinking about the fact that uh, I've been in a couple of other cities and towns to uh, Buttes where you're kind of driving in a kind of conical circular fashion all the way to the top and it's very intuitive. uh, And uh, those Buttes are not wildly dissimilar in their topographical form to a Mount Tabor. And yet those places are a bore compared to Mount Tabor.
1: Well, it helps to have... Uh, the old-growth forest there, too, for the most part, on on a good portion of the park. Uh But yes, uh, it's just not one road that starts at the base and winds its way all over the top. As you know, there are several different carriage roads. And actually, it takes, when you first go to Mount Tabor, whether you're driving or walking or biking... It takes some doing to understand the layout of it all because it's fairly complicated and it's not always intuitive. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. It's intuitive that you're going up or going down (laughs) and making an elevation change, but it's not always intuitive where some of these roads are leading and how they're connecting. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Well, what I love about it, maybe more so than Laurelhurst Park, is that even though Mount Tabor is completely different from Central Park, which I used to visit during my college years, I like in both cases the... The the feeling that you've been enveloped by an entire world, like uh, um, that you really have left the city behind. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if you can hear distant uh, traffic or house construction or Mount Tabor, you might catch the sound of aircraft flying over from landing or taking off at the airport. Mm -hmm. But yeah... uh, There is that sense, and famously so in the center of Central Park in New York City, certainly in the center of Prospect Park in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly in the center of Forest Park here, although that that came later yet. But I I should emphasize that Olmsted did say, look at that marvelous forested hillscape, that forested ridge, save it, protect it in perpetuity. And eventually that's what the city did, but that that took some doing, and that was years later, but it was in the original... Broad report for the for the for his vision for Portland, mm-hmm. but also Mount Tabor, save it, protect it. I, w- I won't use the term seal it off, but that's almost what happened. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. certainly protected it from further development. As you know, the development only extends so far onto the sh- lower shoulders mm-hmm. of uh, Mount Tabor, um, and y- you do enter a different world there. And I have to tell you, and I-, I think you, might, were on the verge of maybe asking, what is my favorite Olmstead Park in Portland. Yes. It was until COVID Laurelhurst Park. For one of all, I live quite near Laurelhurst. Uh, and to me, it's maybe the purest Olmstead Park and that's one reason that I love it. And it's a perfect place to take multiple walks around with different combinations of the exterior and interior walkways to get some exercise. Uh-huh. But during COVID, I, ha- I found a new entrance to See, here's the discovery. How I've been here 25 years. I found an entrance to Mount Tabor I had never utilized. And <laughs> it became my favorite entrance. It's the s- northeastern entrance to Mount Tabor off of Belmont Avenue. And I have a new route, a series of routes that I follow on Mount Tabor. But... And... and Part of that route is less traveled by almost anyone else. It gets Uh, the least visit. There's a couple of trails on certain parts of Tabor that get the least visitation of all the walkers and runners and uh, others that utilize that park. And I have my new routes. And to me, it's been utterly sublime to follow a couple of those routes, depending on whether I want a shorter walk or a longer walk, to seek solace to 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 get some relaxation in, and during this time of COVID of this past year, we know how incredibly, t- literally life-saving across America that all public parks have provided, especially urban parks. And I will say, ever more so, the Olmsted parks. They, uh, they 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 lived up to Olmsted's highest aspirations that he ever had for his parks. And by the way, I will also say he was. An entrepreneur. He was an innovator and an entrepreneur in the field of public health. He complicitly understood public health, physical health, as well as mental and spiritual health. And of all things, he was a sanitation engineer. (laughs) He literally, if you look at what he did, especially with the Boston parks, uh, the Emerald Necklace, the beginning of that, he was a sanitation engineer, quite literally. So go figure. This is what parks have proved. They've. This is this is how people have sought places to be outdoors and to actually renew their spirit and their and to, to seek a healthful environment during the times of COVID with easy so mostly easy social distancing except for maybe crowded portions of Central Park I suppose uh-huh. uh, and, and how marvelous is that
0: sure is sure is I've used it a lot uh, myself I love Mount Tabor so much uh, yeah. um, but in the meantime uh, I think we'll wrap up here though yep. so uh, Lawrence thank you so much for joining us on In Search of Portland
1: you're welcome and I need to put in a special push. Just a reminder: one year from now is the 200th anniversary of Fred Douglas Homestead's birthday, April 26, 2022. And there's going to be national celebrations, and something is cooking regionally as well here for Portland.
0: Absolutely, I love it. I want to be in on that party. Yeah. Well, well, thanks again for joining
1: us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Ryan.
0: In Search of Portland is also sponsored by Capstone Partners, which plans, finances, implements, and manages commercial real estate investments for investors and organizations across the Pacific Northwest. Capstone's roots run deep with decades of experience and solid relationships. Living and working in Portland and Seattle means this local company is poised to find and act on unique opportunities that outside firms never even see. For more information, visit capstone-partners.com. Sig Yunander, thanks for joining us on the show.
3: Great to be here, Brian.
0: Well, uh, I can't believe it was 10 years ago that I first met you and uh, wrote an article for Portland Monthly magazine about Claire Phillips. But uh, I wondered how you first got interested in her story and uh, how you came across
3: it. I was a journalist for many years prior to that. And while I wasn't looking for for this particular story, I happened to cross it. I was at the Multnomah County Library, the main branch, and About 20 years earlier, I had been researching World War II and uh, casually flipping through the front pages of the Oregonian and came across a photograph and the story of a woman who allegedly had been a spy in the Philippines during the Japanese occupation and uh, had done some great things, smuggled food medicine into the prison camps, saved some American soldiers, and uh, was quite a heroine. I'd never heard of her. Um, I found it interesting and I photocopied it and then just filed it away. I had no intention of doing anything immediately with it. Then when I was in the Philippines, um, working on a film many years later, I was interviewing a very elderly Filipina who had been in the Battle of Manila at the end of the war when we liberated it from the Japanese. And I casually asked her, did you uh, ever hear of a spy from my hometown of Portland, Oregon? And she says, oh sure, that was uh, code name High Pockets. We used to work with her in the, the Manila Underground. And I thought, okay this is a story we gotta we gotta chase
0: (laughs) terrific terrific and so uh uh, maybe for those people who don't know maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about her early life in Portland she wasn't born here but uh, I want to say she came was it from Michigan uh that she was born in the early part of the century and came here from Michigan is that right
3: born in Michigan 1907 um mother was uh a stout, midwestern, old-fashioned, Bible-thumping Christian scientist who had three daughters uh, by one husband, and then when the marriage broke up, she married a guy named Jess Snyder, uh, and the family moved out to Portland just before World War One. Uh huh. Uh huh. So Claire, we think of her as a native Oregonian, native Portlander, even though even though she wasn't born here, and um, she did indeed grow up in Southeast Portland. Uh, went to Arletta Grade School, then uh, Franklin High School mm-hmm. for one year. Dropped out of Franklin uh, at the end of her freshman year, um, was uh, not this particularly studious. She could barely spell. Uh, she probably spent more time up on Mount Tabor uh, smoking and, and having a good time than in class. But uh, very intelligent, highly intelligent, and with leadership ability. She was elected president of the Franklin High School Girls League mm-hmm. right off the bat. And uh, although she couldn't participate in athletics because... Uh, girls were not allowed to in the early 20th century in Portland high schools. She would stand on the sidelines of the football games and cheer for the Franklin Quakers and uh, sell little uh, wooden dolls for charity and uh, try to do what she could. She had a reputation. She was uh, fiercely independent. She was a rebel. Uh, She broke all kinds of rules, got in trouble. Uh, It must've been difficult for her mother to keep a, a close hand on her and uh, she also had a big heart if there was a bully somebody getting beat up or if she saw a cat kick she'd step in and she was quite a striking young lady the the descriptions we have of her at age 14 or 15 was a tall lovely brunette 5 foot 8 which meant that she was as taller taller than most of the boys in her class at the time and And she didn't take no guff. Very plain spoken. If she felt that she was crossed, she would let you know.
0: Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so she eventually becomes a a performer and an entertainer for the first time while living here. Uh, I want to say I remember that she briefly had joined the circus and that she uh, got involved in local theater and radio. I want to say I had recalled you saying that she had maybe crossed paths with uh, the great Mel Blank, who went on to become uh, the voice of Bugs Bunny and so much more.
3: (laughs) Yes. Mel Blank was uh, across town at uh, Franklin High School's uh, competitor, Lincoln High School. Uh And uh, he actually invented Woody the Woodpecker by uh, his cackling uh, calls in the echoey halls of Lincoln High School before he graduated in 1925. Um, They did know each other. Uh, uh, Mel became locally famous for his appearances on the KGW radio, Hood Owls program but he also had a band on the side an orchestra that would play dances and he would invite Claire to, to show up and sing and she was quite a vocalist she was a triple threat she could sing act and dance quite talented yeah good natural raw talent and uh, from the time she was a kid she had a, a thing for, for performing she wanted to be up on stage uh getting attention performing uh basically she was a thrill seeker and uh Uh, she ended up dropping out of Franklin High School to go ride the rails with a circus that came to Portland, and that was her first real taste of showbiz.
0: Wow, wow. Didn't she briefly work as like a snake charmer or something something crazy like that?
3: (laughs) That's the story. She, uh, in the summer of 1923, she ran away with a circus, and part of the act at that time uh, in a circus, part of the um, entertainment provider was called a menagerie, Mm Uh, before the they would the crowd would see the main act in the, under the big top that they would the filter through something called a menagerie which would have displays of exotic animals they would have uh, performers of, of various stripes like flamethrower of flame sword swallowers excuse me um, snake charmer freak show um, just uh, magicians escape artists mm-hmm. and um, she was on the circus uh, team basically being a ticket seller, and um, the only job they had open. One day, the snake charmer uh, lady, which basically consisted of uh, a rather comely young lady uh, draping a snake around her to moving to exotic music. Well, the snake charmer fell sick. Guess who got asked to fill in? Uh, Young Miss Claire Phillips was only too happy to don a rather fetching costume and drape a boa constrictor around her and be a snake charmer. That was her first actual performances.
0: If this were a novel, I feel like that would uh, be some bit of foreshadowing in some way, the the, the willingness, the curiosity to to, uh, play with that deadly snake.
3: It was actually pretty well-fed and defanged, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the crowd didn't know that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so how does she get to the Philippines? I, if I recall, it was um, as an entertainer uh, with a traveling theater company, and, and then she um, ends up having one or two marriages while she's there, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Sure. So uh, when she ran away to the circus, her, her mother comes and gets her after six weeks, drags her back to Portland, uh, f- likely with the promise that she would get into a more conventional type of performing which she did, uh, she got a break, an early break with Mayor George Baker's stock company. And uh, you, Brian, you probably know that Mayor Baker was one of the more flamboyant Portland mayors, uh, ran one of the most corrupt administrations in history, but also quite a showman, brought big, big Broadway stars to Portland and had his own musical stock company. And so she got an early break with the Baker stock company as a backup utility actor and singer. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I think it was probably with the company for a couple of years in the 1920s. At that time, Portland was rife with a lot of uh, futurely famous people who would be recognizable to almost everyone. You know, Clark Gable was with the uh, Taylor Street Players. Maya Matho, wh- whom you've written about, mm-hmm. um, would be uh, Mrs. Humphrey Bogart later on, was with the uh, Baker Stock Company also. So she rubbed shoulders with uh, a lot of these people. Uh, James Beard blew just up the street from Clare, he was an actor. Incredible. Uh, yeah. So in that milieu of young, bubbling talent, upcoming talent in 20th century Portland, uh, Claire Phillips was inculcated with not only the desire to perform, but also being surrounded by young people with abilities.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: So okay. she, to go on with her life, As she dropped out after a couple of years of training of with Baker. She realized that because she didn't really fit in with the... With the uh, the professional theater crowd—they, um, in fact, they sort of looked down on her. She was rough around the edges. She, uh, the high school dropout status, didn't really endear her to the, the Portland's theater-going elite. And she virtually lost hope that she would be an ingenue or play any significant role. And she moved on. That was part of her pattern. She uh, keep moving and moving until she found something and then pursue it. Uh, she got into vaudeville. Are you familiar with Vaudeville? Oh, sure, sure.
0: Yeah, uh, 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 a a dominant form of early entertainment uh, um, before there was radio or be- certainly before there was television.
3: It was cheap, flashy entertainment for the masses. It was not considered legitimate theater, but it was actually far more popular and, and uh, it was inexpensive. And when autos, radio, mo- and talking movies came in in the 20s, Uh, legitimate theater shrunk. The the production costs were very high, and uh, stock theater and even musical theater began to fade, yet vaudeville continued because the operating costs were lower, it was more popular, there were more venues. And so Claire went up to Seattle. There were two great vaudeville entrepreneurs up there at the time. They had competing chains. Uh, Claire did an audition, and she modeled herself after a, a sassy sophie tucker and did an over-the-top rendition that got her a gig in vaudeville and then she ran traveled with a vaudeville company for several years mm-hmm. um doing the circuits all around the west salt lake city denver portland seattle san francisco and to really cut her teeth there as the 1920s came to a close
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh um could you tell me a little bit about um uh her kind of putting roots down in the Philippines, she, she married one person and adopted a daughter, is that right?
3: Yeah, she had a, a couple of quickie marriages, uh, which were <laughs> frequently dissolved uh, during the Depression. It was a very difficult time, as you know, and uh, Claire was actually arrested up in Seattle for vagrancy at one time, and she was panhandling the street corners. It was it, very difficult to survive, but she befriended a woman named Louise Demartini uh, up in Seattle, coal miner's daughter, and they became best chums. It was kind of like a thumb on Louise relationship, you know, great girlfriends, having fun, seeing adventure, traveling together. Louise uh, went to Hawaii and invited Claire to come along. And she did. And then, uh, moved on to Manila. Hawaii got a little expensive, uh, in, uh, the thirties. And so, uh, Louise goes to Manila, falls in love with the city, invites Claire. Claire comes to Manila in 1938 and, uh, is charmed by the city, the culture, the people, sort of falls in love with it, and uh, gets a performing gig at the Metropolitan Theater, which was the principal performing venue in Manila at that time. Very prestigious, beautiful Art Deco place. You, you, it's still there, it's being restored. And uh, she met a, a rather elegant Filipino, uh, a gentleman, much her senior, in his 40s, who was had Latin looks and charms, his name was Manuel Fuentes. And uh, Fuentes had a good job uh, as a merchant marine officer. And uh, they were married for about uh, two and a half years. During the marriage, Claire adopted a young Filipina girl, an infant, her name was Deanne. And when the marriage didn't work out, uh, according to Claire, and probably true, because Manuel was an inveterate gambler, a drinker, was always going out to the cockfights and gambling hundreds of pesos and losing... (laughs) Uh, she uh, got got rather impatient and in good, clear fashion, decided to come back to Portland in the spring of 1941. Just as you know, was the eve of World War II. Very Comes back to Portland, which at that time was still recovering from the depression. The, there were homeless tents all over town, um, something we can probably relate to today. Uh, it was uh, a provincial inland seaport that had been impoverished by the, the, the depression for 10 years. Yeah, there wasn't much happening here, and sure enough, Claire became bored. She picked up some new songs and gowns, and then in the fall of 1941, goes back to the Philippines, right into a war zone, Uh potentially. Wow. That's where her book, her autobiography, really, her story begins, Mm -hmm. and the middle part of her story, the great part of her story, really enters into the picture.
0: Yeah, yeah. So she eventually uh, winds up owning her own club, the Tsubaki Club, Um, but... uh, Um, She goes through a heck of a lot before that point um, uh, and takes some lumps. uh, And uh, so could you talk a little bit about her establishing herself uh, and and how she winds up uh, founding this club?
3: Sure. She gets a performing gig at the prestigious Manila Hotel, but it doesn't last long. She ends up working at a casino, uh, singing with a big band, doing jazz numbers and, and pop hits from the United States... One night in the fall of 1941, a very handsome G.I. an American soldier named John Phillips walks in and they had immediate, instant chemistry, fell in love, love at first sight, had a whirlwind romance through the fall of 1941 in Manila. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a storybook romance that that included uh, going to elegant dances, uh, swimming on the beach, walking hand-in-hand down uh, Dewey Avenue, and All the great things that you can do in Manila. And all this time, they were having nightly blackouts as the Japanese planned their conquest of Southeast Asia and the Philippines. It finally came to a head. I'm going to get married, but a little thing called World War II intervened. Yes, yes. December 2nd, December 7th, 1941. The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 7.55 in the morning. Uh, across the International Dateline in Manila, uh, it was 0300 hours early in the morning when General MacArthur, our former Army Chief, who was now Field Marshal for the Philippine Army, got the call. A few hours later, the Japanese destroyed the American Air Force on the ground at Clark Field outside Manila and then bombed the Cavite Naval Institution. So in a one-two punch, the Japanese took out the prime naval base in Asia and also about half of the American air power in the Far East.
4: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
3: And things began to change very quickly for Claire and her
0: new husband,
3: or her, who are her husband-to-be. Yes, they were engaged. Um, the handsome young John Phil, Sergeant John Filtz was a communication specialist with the 31st American Infantry. It's the largest American outfit in the Philippines. And they very quickly had to mobilize from a rather soft and lazy peacetime existence to uh, a very hectic wartime footing. Uh, they quickly got armed up. And at that time, we had no um, effective war plan for the Philippines. We had a backup plan called War Plan Orange, which basically was a defensive plan, um, which would leave Manila an open city. If the Japanese invaded, we would simply pull out and let them take the city, hopefully leave it unharmed. Meanwhile, the American army was to pull out of the city and sweep around to the west and go down into a peninsula called Batan, which would become... Mm-hmm. Very famous in history, mm-hmm. the Batan Peninsula is about 25 miles long. It's across Manila Bay from Manila, and it's ideally suited for defensive and guerrilla warfare. It's a high mountains, jungle, um, very impenetrable. Lots of malaria, tropical diseases. It's no place that you probably won't want to go for vacation, mm-hmm. but it's a great place for defensive warfare. So we knew we couldn't match the Japanese air power and and army, but. Uh, It was thought that MacArthur's Philippine army, approximately 78,000 American and Filipino troops, could hold out long enough for the United States to bring a convoy in to rescue them, which had been promised by President Roosevelt. Unfortunately, that was not possible. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the power, and and the President and Winston Churchill decided that uh, they would beat Hitler first. The wartime strategy would be to win the war in Europe first. then. Defeat the Japanese in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. That's how it turned out. Mm-hmm. And so the Japanese take Manila,
0: and uh, um, and Claire for a time has no idea what has become of her husband and then receives bad news. And doesn't, doesn't, uh, the tragedy of losing her husband in, in some ways steal her will to, to begin smuggling, uh, medicine and supplies to the good guys and to start this club. Isn't it true? If I recall that the Subaki club is from the start conceived as a way to spy on the Japanese.
3: What happened next was a dramatic change in the, in the, nature and the arc of Claire's character which had been basically a happy-go-lucky uh, almost narcissistic kind of uh, self-centered existence suddenly she's changed she is altered by the events that suddenly overtake them one after another the cataclysmic invasion of the philippines the fall of Manila, the japanese walk in take the city uh, the american army retreats and with it go john phillips sergeant phillips and Claire and her young daughter—they suddenly have to evacuate the city. They pull out. Now they're in a war zone. They're in a little town called Pilar, out in the peninsula. The Japanese are moving in. They're bombing. They're spraying. Um, they're under attack. And John Phillips proposes marriage, and they actually get married in a jungle ceremony right in a combat zone. They're uh, they're wedded by a Filipino priest. It wasn't legal, uh, but it was wartime, and I think that they thought if one or both of them survived, that. They could take care of the legalities later but uh, in, uh on christmas eve 1941 they get married and then of uh, uh, a long hard battle of resistance begins with the american army holding back and being pushed back back and back by the japanese retreating down the ben- patan peninsula for four months until they finally had to surrender on april 9th 1942. 42. um the, we were not the only ones having trouble. The Japanese commander Yamashita um, had thought that he could conquer the Philippines in 30 days. Didn't happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. After all, he defeated Singapore in, in a couple of weeks. Hong Kong fell in 10 days. So it was reasonable to think that the Philippines would be easy. It wasn't. We gave them a long, hard fight, and eventually some of the American forces retreated across to Corregidor Island, held out there for another month, and then finally to so It's often called the Alamo of the Pacific. One of the greatest last stands in American history and uh, it would be the only time in American history that an American and allied army were surrendered to a foreign power in a field of battle. Mm. So John Phillips gets caught up in that and he he did uh, was forced to surrender with his unit and uh, went into a prison camp. Claire had no idea where he was. You know, she went all over the through the jungle by herself on Batan looking for him, asking around, and happened to meet a, an American corporal who refused to surrender, a guy named John Boone, who wanted to form a guerrilla outfit to fight the Japanese, and so they teamed up, Claire Phillips and John Boone teamed up and became uh, comrades-in-arms, so to speak. Wow. And uh, she ended up going back to Manila uh, looking for her husband, John Phillips, and assumed an entirely new identity, used her acting chops to invent... To actually to reinvent herself as an Italian Filipina mestiza uh, who had lost her papers in the in the bombing of Bataan and now got new papers from the Italian consulate and uh, the blessing of of a judge and the sign off of the Japanese commandant of the uh, uh, local Japanese uh, army and became Dorothy Clara Fuentes <laughs> uh, an exotic uh, Filipina performer and uh, You're probably wondering why how Claire would possibly get away with this because you know she's a high school dropout from Portland, Oregon and she's suddenly having to deal with uh, Japanese secret policemen who are highly trained and, and good at spotting deception. Claire was a great actress. She had the chops. She also had the uh, a semi-Latin or Asian appearance. Her skin was was almost dark. It was olive-complected. She was a beautiful brunette. She sort of looked exotic and she was able to play on those looks and her acting ability to inhabit this new personae that she invented.
0: Mm -hmm,
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow.
0: And, uh, um, could you paint a, a little bit of a picture of, of, uh, uh, what's happening at the Subaki Club? The uh, the I imagine to these Japanese soldiers, it's it's a it's a place that they feel like they can uh lo- you know trust and and let their hair down and uh, and so they begin to kind of tell Claire some of their secrets.
3: Is that right? Claire had gotten a job uh, as a hostess in, in another nightclub, and uh, at one time she had an encounter with some Japanese patrons that was rather unpleasant. She insulted them by slapping a gentleman's face who had uh, insulted her, and she was taken to the back room and and beat to a bloody pulp, basically, because at that time women were subservient to men in Japanese culture, and she needed to be educated. So after that, she realized, hey, if I'm going to be mistreated, I might as well have my own club, and she ended up stealing all the best employees of the Anafe nightclub, including a very talented young Filipina, who spoke Japanese and who had been captain of the dance team at University of the Philippines. Her name was Feli Kokwera, and she became Claire's right-hand woman, helped her to establish a brand new nightclub called, as you've said, the Subaki Club. Tsubaki means camellia in Japanese, and uh, it was thought, conceived to be a very high-class, almost snooty nightclub where only the best of the Japanese occupation intelligentsia and military officers would patronize. So that was her beginning as Madame Subaki, or the Manila Manahari.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, though, it comes to an end, and and she's captured, and she experiences real pain. She's essentially tortured. Uh, how does it all come crashing down for her?
3: Mm-hmm. She ran the club for uh, almost two years, uh, very successfully. It it made money. It was uh, not only a place for entertainment, high-class entertainment not available in other venues in Manila. But it also became a clearinghouse for information for the Manila underground. Like Paris, like many other occupied cities during World War II, Manila had a very active underground movement. They would send intelligence to MacArthur's headquarters in Australia. Uh, they would organize uh, guerrilla operations against Japanese forces out in the provinces and the jungles and communicate with those uh, outlying provinces. They would also t- uh, use the money, Claire used the money that she made the profits from her inebriated Japanese patrons to finance the guerrilla operations, to send money and supplies, medicines, out into the hinterlands to her guerrillas headed by John Boone. Also uh, tons of money, supplies, food, medicine, uh, even cherry notes and in newspapers into the prison camps, which was a highly dangerous operation. and. Uh, the number of the guerrillas who were involved in smuggling into the prison camps were later captured and tortured, and eventually that would become the fate that befell Claire.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um she came as close as you can to, to dying and and uh it seemed like she was gonna be executed before um before the liberation, and yet she um she survives.
3: One of her uh compatriots was captured by the Japanese secret police, the Kimpitai, and tortured, and revealed that Claire was the, the madam running the Sabaki Club and was, in, in truth, was a spy for the uh, Americans and Filipinos, and a, a resistance leader. And she was arrested in May of 1944, taken to the secret police headquarters, uh, interrogated very aggressively, uh, they waterboarded, um, shocked, Uh, beaten many times and even uh, threatened with execution uh, in a dungeon in Fort Santiago by a Japanese officer with a samurai sword. So she came very, very close to literally losing her head.
0: Wow, wow. And then suddenly the war is over and she's got to, just like uh, millions of of American soldiers, she's got to readjust herself to American life and she comes back to Portland um, and eventually... Is is given a lot of due at the time
3: as a as a as a hero. Yeah, she is tried and found guilty and sentenced to death by a Japanese military tribunal, and then spends the final months of the war before the liberation of Manila in the spring of forty five, uh, basically starving to death in a, the women's correctional institution. She is liberated by a squad of American Texas Rangers in a, a Hollywood type of. Engagement where they, they move into the prison and shoot some Japanese guards and, and take these starved, uh, half dead women out and take them to safety at Santo Tomas University, where Claire recovers, then comes back to Portland. And in the spring of 1945, she makes her very first radio appearance on National Network on KON Radio <laughs> in, in Portland, and uh, with a very dramatic interview. And that begins her post war story of. And a reputation of being a World War II hero, receiving the Medal of Freedom, and then going on to uh, to famous as. as uh a
0: hmm mm-hmm. Yeah, she, uh, she uh, is on this very popular TV show, This Is Your Life, and and is celebrated. And, and then uh, um, uh, this movie, I want to say, this is all around 1950, 1951. And then there's this Hollywood movie, I Was an American
3: Spy, as well. Yeah, before that, she knows she's got a great story, and she goes down to California, meets a former screenwriter, Myron uh, Myra Goldsmith, who collaborates with Claire and begins to write her story and it's a great one. And it becomes a book called Manila Espionage published here in Portland by Binford and Moore 1947. Uh, she shops the story around two various Hollywood producers, has no luck, but eventually gets someone interested. Uh, about that time she, she is invited to appear on the radio show. This is your life, Ralph Edwards, a great Hollywood entrepreneur. And, uh, Uh, Basically, they dig into her life, and she is surprised when she's invited in for an interview. Uh, One day in 1950, March 1950, in Hollywood, and finds herself in the This Is Your Life studio, and the whole story of her life unfolds over an hour. You can still hear it in in the the old radio tape. People from her life, her past life, uh, appear lauding her, well, often for the first time she hadn't seen them in a long time best friend Luis Di Martini, carlos romulo who was one of the greatest diplomats ever to come from philippines the first filipino secretary general of the united nations is honoring her general mark clark big army commander during world war ii three-star general uh who had presented her with a medal of freedom the highest civilian honor bestowed during world war ii and he comes on and, and uh, congratulates Claire Phillips on This Is Your Life mm-hmm. a great program and then Ralph Edwards comes to Portland and presents her with a house in Beaverton huh. a car uh, furnishings money the scholarship for her daughter to go to Lewis and Clark College wow and so now she's a big celebrity uh, the first woman Portland mayor Dorothy McCulloch Lee uh, speaks to 2,500 people in front of Claire's new house in Beaverton honoring her the, there's there are delegates from Congress. There are uh, important the governors there and speaks in her behalf. So um, it, it's quite a moment. Wow,
0: wow! And yet she has probably some form of PTSD and uh, and has demons. You know she's uh, suffering a, a, a fate that a lot of soldiers did, um, uh, trying to um, run away from. Uh, what they've seen and, and probably suppressing it or trying to drive it away with drink and so she doesn't live that much longer uh, after after that kind of high point of that movie. Uh, is that right?
3: She's living a dual existence public personality uh, wartime hero by day of uh, doing public appearances, book signings, book tours. She actually goes on the road with a movie that, that's made about her life. It's called this is uh, excuse me. I Was an American Spy, it uh, produced 1951, Uh, it comes out and Claire actually goes on tour with the film, appearing all over the country at at glitzy performances, uh, giving speeches, uh, promoting the film and it actually does quite well. It's a Hollywood version of the story, it's partly fictitious but uh, it's it's an interesting film to watch and uh, it did well at the box office and really catapulted Claire. Uh, into a position of national celebrity. Mm-hmm. However, as you mentioned, the same time that she's living this this public life of uh, hero worship, she is suffering deeply from the experiences that she's been unable to shake off from World War II. Uh, she has severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, she wasn't a veteran, so no treatment was available to her. So she self-medicates with alcohol. She uh, had a taste for hard liquor, and uh, uh, oftentimes uh, could be found drinking alone in her house in Southeast Portland, Uh, sometimes waking up at night screaming from the demons that still haunted her from World War II. Wow, wow.
0: And so when did she die then?
3: Uh, Her health had been greatly compromised during the war from the torture she'd suffered, uh, an operation she'd had, and uh, substance abuse. And... uh, she, her health gradually faded at the end of the 1950s, and in the spring of 1960 she's admitted to a hospital in Portland with the meningitis is there treated just a very short period of time and passes away suddenly at the age of fifty two Wow, wow
0: and uh um, uh what's it been like? kind of chasing this story. I know you've been working on uh, a biography of Claire and, and uh, you've taken her story on the road a little bit. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, uh, the journey you've been on uh, and, and what you've seen as you've talked to people and taken her story around the state?
3: Uh, the story is really so incredible and Hollywood-ish. I, I really wasn't sure whether, how much of it was real. At first, you know, it, it, it seemed too good to be true or too unusual to be true, and it wasn't until I went to the Philippines, working another story, and had 1st first, first-hand testimony from people who knew her and vouched for her that it indeed was real. That mm-hmm. I found some documents that supported it. I found her World War II diary. Uh, I read her book, which really only tells the story of of the war. It's not a biography, uh, and began to put the whole story together, realizing that. Although she's known for her World War II experience, she actually was a very interesting person with with quite an interesting life before and after the war. And I thought the biography would be worthwhile to tell the story. Mm -hmm. So I've been working on that for about 10 10 years and uh, coming along nicely. Um, It will have unpublished photographs. It will have the true story based on hundreds of documents supporting... um, Claire's entire story, the, the arc of her life going from self-centered, uh, impetuous narcissist to wartime national hero, uh, revered personality, and then her post-war experiences, fighting PTSD, being a single working mother, dealing with so many of the issues, Brian, that we, uh, we deal with today. Uh, economic inequality, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, alcoholism. You know, she dealt with that two generations ago, Mm -hmm. and now uh, her story is still very relevant. Also relevant because the Japanese had slowly acquired many territories around the South Pacific and and East Asia long before World War II, much as the Chinese are now doing in in the South China Sea and around militarizing islands and so on and so forth. Uh, America turned a blind eye to that during the Depression. They were focused upon economic recovery and our own internal issues. And it came back to haunt us when, when World War II started. Mm-hmm. So we need to be vigilant and, and pay attention to what's happening in Asia and the Far East. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, our future is there. It's important. It's also important to remember that more American soldiers were sacrificed in the Philippines during World War II than in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. So these, It's important and I think useful to remember this history and learn from it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what do you make of... Uh efforts to uh, honor Claire in some way that we have done or might do in the future. Like uh, we were talking about Mount Tabor is one of the places we associate with Claire. There's been a little bit of a controversy over statuary at, at Mount Tabor, you know, Harvey Scott and this clandestinely placed York statue. But, you know, I think a a Claire Phillips statue at Mount Tabor sounds kind of nice. But uh, what do you think?
3: Claire Phillips is sort of interlinked with, with Mount Tabor because, when she was a freshman at Franklin High School, she'd follow the path up there. Many students did, and they would cut school, play hooky, and uh, go sneak a smoke up on, on Mount Tabor. It was a little different then. There was a beautiful rose garden up there, and uh, Claire liked to go up there and sit and just look out over the Portland, uh, watch the sunset on the West Hills, and dream about what she might do in the future as a performer. and. Um, where she'd like to go and travel and so forth. It was a special place for her. Mm-hmm. And so I've always thought that some kind of a statue or monument or plaque to Claire on Mount Tabor would be extremely appropriate. In the article that you wrote for Portland Monthly Magazine, you, know, you did a good job outlining her, and uh, she's deeply connected with the Rose City. I think the real city should honor her.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially now that um, we're living in an age of, of empowerment and uh, um, you know there are a lot of uh, people out there who would take inspiration from her. And um, it seems like maybe her story is, has faded away a little bit over, over recent years or decades. And, and um seems like uh, um, that could change, though.
3: Claire died at the beginning of the 1960s uh at that time people were, inter- were not interested in war stories uh we were america was deeply involved in the cold war uh president john f kennedy had just been elected uh we were moving into a, one of the most turbulent periods of american history uh, and one of the most exciting periods with the, the reach for the moonshot shot, uh, the, the vietnam war the civil rights movement all that was happening uh, just after claire phillips passed away so she was completely forgotten her story was consigned to history probably never to be resurrected again, it was thought at the time. But recently there's been a spate of interest in Claire Phillips' story. Um, The American Embassy in the Philippines has a large Claire Phillips room. It's one of the principal places where foreign diplomats uh, and dignitaries are welcomed. It has a life-size oil portrait of Claire Phillips and memorabilia and it's right next to the room where General Yamashita was tried for war crimes mm. right after the war, so it's it's incredibly historic. So she's rec- recognized by our State Department overseas. Uh, here in the States, um, there hasn't been much recognition. Of, in Portland, the Franklin High School did give her the Order of the Kite, which is a Distinguished Alumni Award, and then I've been pushing for uh, a state to recognize her, and uh, by fortuitous circumstances, uh, Representative Bill Markham in the Oregon Legislature um, had a similar idea. We worked together and got the governor's approval and backing for a Claire Phillips monument at, in the World War II Plaza at the State Capitol. And in 2017, we were able to make that happen. And uh, there was a dedication in the fall of 2017. Governor Kate Brown and I spoke and gave addresses explaining Claire Phillips's significance to Oregon history. And uh, what a wonderful hero she was and a woman ahead of her time in many senses uh, who confronted many of the problems that we deal with today and uh, in a way is is a great and courageous role model, uh, not only for women, but I think for all people who are public and patriotically spirited, want to do something for their state and their country. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, They already made this movie about her, but I think uh, it, her story is really ripe for maybe a new Hollywood movie. Uh, um, maybe like an Angelina Jolie could play her, or who who might play Claire in in, in the new Hollywood movie? I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> well, you know, I I think it just speaks to the to the glamour and and intrigue that she represents. And uh, you know, we spend a lot of time and a lot of money on on spy movies, and uh, um, I think uh, people far beyond Oregon would be delighted to learn her story.
3: She's she has to be one of the most unusual spies, because unlike most of the women who were American spies in World War II she was not an ivy league educated socialite uh, the oss which was our spy organization during the war was a rather exclusive institution of highly educated people who were socialized uh, so- who socialized a lot with each other and they were very clannish mm-hmm. claire was not could never have been a part of that she was rough around the edges she could barely spell uh she just didn't fit into that upscale uh milieu uh, and yet she was gifted. She had the, the the gift of deception. She was clever. She had street smarts. She was a performer who was able to in, reinvent herself. And in that sense, she was actually a very credible spy and did some very good work that she deserved to be remembered for. You bet. So uh, the book I'm writing uh, will be her entire story, beginning from day one, uh, with never published photographs and documents. And it will be the first true biography focusing entirely on Clara Phillips and telling her great, great story. Super, super.
0: Well, with that, I will say, uh, Sigunander, thank you so much for joining us on the show.
3: Brian, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and I look forward to working with you in the future.
0: All right, all right. Another quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials. If you're a homeowner, you might want to go online and check out Mutual's natural stone catalog at mutualmaterials.com forward slash resources. You can also visit their showroom, for now by appointment that is, at 2175 Northwest Raleigh Street. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest all right i believe that just about wraps things up thanks again to sig unander and lawrence cotton for talking with us before we go though i'd like to branch out a little beyond just the people who have made mount tabor park or spent time there to the plants themselves the trees i'm going to end this episode by reading to you a list i found as part of mount tabor's listing for the national register of historic places i hope when i read you this list of 98 different species that I don't appear like Forrest Gump listing how many types of shrimp he can cook. I'm going to spare you with the Latin names that come with all these, but here goes, more or less in alphabetical order. Red alder, American brooklime, Andromeda, Barbary, Big Leaf Maple, Bittercress, Blackberry, buddleia, Buttercup, Burdock, Bracken fern, California buckeye, Camellia, Cedar, centauri, chickweed, chicory, clematis, clivers, red clover, white clover, common ground cell, cotton easter, cottonwood, cranesbill, english daisy, oxeye daisy, dandelion, yellow dock, dogbane, pacific dogwood, creek dogwood, douglas fir, english ivy, fairy lanterns, hawthorn, hawkbit, Hazelnut, Hemlock, Hydrangea, Holly, Horse Chestnut, Horsetail, Juniper, Kalmia, Knotweed, Lamb's Quarters, Pacific Madrone, Strawberry Madrone, Mallow, Mock Orange, Mountain Ash, Nipplewort, Oak, Ocean Spray, Oregon Grape, Osoberry, Indian Plum, Pearly Everlasting, Periwinkle, pineapple weed, pine, pittosporum, poison oak, Queen Anne's lace, raspberry, red flowering currant, rhododendron, rush, salsify, scots broom, sedge, self heel, sheep sorrel, shepherd's purse, snowberry, solomon seal, St. John's wort, strawberry, sword fern, tansy ragwort, thimbleberry, thistle, Trillium, Uva Ursi, Vetch, Viburnum, Vine Maple, Wygella, Witch Hazel, Wild Cherry, Wild Lettuce, Wild Rose, Willow, Yarrow, Youth on Age, Yellow Dock, Yew. And there we have it. search of portland is produced by x-ray fm and part of the x-ray podcast network which you can find at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts this season is edited by jonathan covent and brem thanks jonathan and thank you to our sponsors mutual materials and capstone partners thanks as well to chad clark and his band beauty pill for providing music to maxwell griffin for graphic design And thanks to my partner, Valerie Smith, for both editing my writing and providing lots of moral support. Thank you, too, to Nikolai Kruger, who creates an original artwork to accompany each episode of this podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening. Bye for now.